0: It's hard to get motivated to prepare for it, isn't it? So for instance, you find yourself saying, ah, there's plenty of time to save for our kids' college education, they're so little. Or you find yourself saying, I have years until I retire, I'll contribute to an IRA one of these years. Or graduation is a couple of years away, I have plenty of time to get my grade point average up. Where there's no sense of urgency, we often become sloppy in our living. You know, it's still the middle of winter. I've got plenty of time to lose weight before swimsuit season. (laughs) Give me another piece of pizza, will you? I'll get around to breaking that bad habit one of these years. Or sure, I haven't spoken to my brother in years, but we won't stay mad at each other forever. For us as Christians, it can sound like this. One of these days, I really ought to get serious about sharing my faith with my friend at work. Not today, but one of these days. Or one of these days, I really need to get right with the Lord, you know, and overcome that habit that I have. Not right now. I want to have a little more fun first. One of these days, I'll let God have His way. Or one of these days when I'm not so busy, when the kids are maybe a little older and things aren't quite so busy at work, then I'll serve the Lord. I can't do it right now, but I'll get around to it one of these days. You know, the problem with that kind of thinking, of course, is that time has a way of going a lot faster than any of us anticipate, doesn't it? And so the kids grow up before you know it, and they're heading off to college. Retirement comes a lot quicker than you think. Uh, Graduation, swimsuit season. You know, if you don't break the habit now, if you don't reconcile with your brother soon, you may find yourself looking back at a lifetime of regret and missed opportunities. There needs to be an urgency about how we live if we're going to get the most out of life and if we're going to be ready to face life's greatest challenges. That's what Jesus is showing us in the end part of Mark chapter 13 in the section that's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is delivering this message to four of his apostles as they're sitting together atop the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem below them. And the whole conversation has been spurred on by Jesus' prediction back in verse 2 of this chapter that the temple is about to be destroyed or is going to be destroyed within a generation. That not one stone will be left upon another, prompting them then to ask Jesus, when will these things be and what will be the sign that we should look for? And so Jesus, in the earlier part of chapter 13, as we saw last week, has been telling them all about the, the sign part. What should we be looking for? And he's told them that, you know, everybody wants to know about the the sign of the very end, but there are a lot of things that are going to happen before that that you need to be aware of. You need to expect these things so you don't blunder your way through them. And he's told them about how there's going to be people who are uh, false Christs, people who are imposters claiming to be the Christ. Don't be led astray by them. There's going to be catastrophes, wars and rumors of wars and, and famines and earthquakes in various places These things have to happen, but that's not yet the end, so don't be alarmed by them. And then there's going to be persecution. Even as the gospel is being proclaimed to the ends of the earth, you can expect that you're going to experience persecution, but don't be anxious about it because I'm going to be with you in the midst of all that. But there is one thing you need to be especially on the lookout for, he told them in the previous part of the chapter, and that is when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it does not belong, when you see the Antichrist standing in the temple courts in Jerusalem demanding to be worshiped, then you know that it's time to get out of town. Don't stick around because really, really bad stuff is about to go down, a time of trouble like the world has never seen before nor ever will see again. But God will, for the sake of the elect, cut that time short. And so Jesus ended that section by saying, you know, don't go after people who say, I am the Christ, Uh, false Christs and false prophets will arise, but don't you chase after them. Even if they do signs and miracles to persuade you to follow, they lead the elect astray if possible, but don't you follow them because I've warned you in advance So now Jesus is ready to give them the when. He's already talked about the what. These are the things you should look for. This is what you should expect. When's it all going to go down? When's when's it going to happen? That's what he talks about in the rest of the passage. And it motivates us to quit putting off things we're so prone to become lazy about as Christians. I want you to follow with me a four step progression of thought. Jesus is laying this out for us in kind of four steps. And uh, it's, it's all in the, in the wake of this conversation about don't be led astray by, by the Antichrist, by the false prophet, those who, who want to lead you astray, who are going to try to persuade you that they're the Christ. Why? Because my coming is not going to be like that. It's not going to be able to be mistaken. It's going to be so obvious when I come that, that there will be no guesswork about it. And so there's this word in verse 24 that is a contrast word Uh, You know, the Antichrist is going to do that. But, but this is what you watch out for. And, And the first step in his progression of thought here is to say that I am coming with power and glory. Jesus is coming with power and glory. There won't be any doubt about it when Jesus comes again. The abomination of desolations will appear in the temple The Antichrist, that will be followed by the worst time of trouble the world has ever seen, the great tribulation. Jesus has just laid all this out for us earlier in the chapter. God will cut that time short, and then the return of Christ will be accompanied by celestial phenomenon described in verses 24 and 25, and that's where we pick up in chapter 13 where he says, but in those days, in contrast to the the Antichrist who has to try to persuade you he's the Christ But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. He's saying, you know, something unmistakable is going to be taking place. This is uh, imagery and language taken from Old Testament descriptions of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that description of the time of the end, a whole series of events, not just a single day, but a whole series of events leading up to the very end of history where God will come and he will judge his enemies and he will, he will vindicate his own people. He will gather the elect and save them and he will set all things right and make all things new and usher in a glorious kingdom that will never end. And, and the heavens themselves, you know, Isaiah talks about this and Ezekiel and Joel and Amos in the Old Testament, they all talk about this day of the Lord, And how the heavens themselves will be thrown into confusion. It will be an unmistakable event. And Jesus says, and they will see, in the midst of all this this heavenly phenomenon going on, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The one who is despised and rejected the first time he came to earth will come again in such overwhelming fashion that it will be clear to everyone who this is. The Antichrist will try to persuade people he's the Christ, but when Jesus comes, there will be no doubt about it. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, Jesus isn't the only one to describe this in the Scripture. Another place you find a description of this day is in John's Revelation, the Apostle John And Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11, I just want to read you John's description of this moment when Jesus comes back on the scene of human history. Listen to this. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. of a fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus says, when I come back, I will come back in power and glory. And when he does come back that way, his first order of business will be to gather his people so that they may be together with him. He goes on in verse 27 to say, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, this likely includes those who will survive the great tribulation, especially those who have come to faith in Christ in those days. But I believe it also has special reference to the nation of Israel. The apostle Paul in Romans 11 spoke of a day when all Israel will be saved. I believe that this is that day that he's talking about. The Old Testament prophets speak of a day when Israel will be regathered to the Messiah to be judged, restored as a nation, and to be redeemed. When Jesus comes again in power and glory, he will judge the world and rescue and redeem his elect, his chosen ones. And so Jesus says… Don't go running after others who claim to be the Christ, even if they make their case by doing supposed signs and miracles. When I come again, it will be in unmistakable fashion after the time of the great tribulation. But this need not take you totally by surprise. If you know how to read the times, you will anticipate them. So, this is Jesus' progression of thought. First, he will come again in unmistakable fashion with power and great glory. And then he says, Now watch for the signs that the time is drawing near. Watch for the signs that the time is drawing near. He says in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now unlike other trees in Israel, the fig tree loses its leaves in the winter and buds again and produces leaves in the spring. And so, whenever the stiff, dry winter twig becomes tender, softened due to the rising sap, and leaves begin to come out, then that's a sure sign in Israel that summer is coming. In fact, given the fact that this was Passover season, it probably was April when, when Jesus is giving this address to his disciples, it's very likely that the fig trees right there on the Mount of Olives, right nearby them, are in this exact stage of beginning to bud and produce leaves again. Remember the fig tree that Jesus cursed back in chapter 11, just a few days before this? It was full of leaves but had no fruit yet. Well, that's because it was spring. That's a sure sign that summer is on the way. So Jesus is saying, so when you see these things take place, you know that he is near. Who? The Son of Man. That's the way Jesus refers to himself. When you see these events I'm talking about taking place, you know that I'm near. At the very gates. Now, we said last week that all these things that will take place among them are things that people will mistake as signs of the end, but they're not. Uh, They're just the kinds of things we should expect to happen while the gospel is being preached throughout the world. There will be wars and rumors of wars and persecution and imposters claiming to be the Christ. People will think this is the end, but Jesus says this is not yet the end. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You know, you could think of it this way that for 2,000 years now, Christians have experienced wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and, and famines and persecution and an impostors claiming to be the Christ. And, and if we look at our crazy times and we think, wow, this is just out of control, I've never seen anything like this, well, it's just our turn. It's just our turn. Our turn to stand up and represent Christ well in crazy times like the ones that Jesus talks about. He says, don't be led astray in those times. Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. But then he says right after that, that there is that one thing. That when it happens, you take as a sure sign that bad stuff is about to go down. When you see that abomination that causes desolation, the Antichrist standing where he does not belong, namely in the temple, demanding to be worshiped, you get out of town. Don't stick around because the world is about to experience a time of trouble, the likes of which no one will ever see or has ever seen or will ever see again. And when all that starts going down, that's like the sap flowing through the branches of the fig tree, letting you know that a blistering hot summer is on its way. That's when you know that I'm getting ready to come. I'll be standing at the gate of heaven with angel armies ready for battle, awaiting the Father's order to burst back onto the scene of human history, to set all things right and make all things new, to judge the evil and gather the elect for salvation. And he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, you might think that Jesus was saying that, that the apostles' generation would, would not pass away until all these things take place. Some interpreters look at this and they say, no, probably what Jesus means here is that the generation that sees these signs will not pass away before Jesus comes again. But it's also important to realize that the disciples, thinking in terms of their own day, have asked a question about when will come the destruction of the temple? And remember we said that the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is a foreshadowing of all these other events that will take place in the end of times at the hands of the Antichrist. And what Jesus might be saying here as well is that people who are alive today, namely um, the, the apostles' generation, will live long enough to see what I'm talking about, this foreshadowing of what is yet to come. You might just live long enough to see the temple desecrated and destroyed. And indeed, many of them did. They lived to see the terrible events of 70 A.D., And Christians living in that time, as the Romans were getting ready to destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem, recognized the signs, and they fled across the Jordan River to the hills and the town of Pella. Jesus is saying, mark my words, before this generation dies off, you will see some of the things that I've been talking about, and when that happens, you can take it to the bank that the rest of what I've told you will also happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away what I'm telling you is absolutely reliable. The unmistakable coming of the Son of Man will follow the time of great tribulation. If you're astute, you'll watch for the signs that all this is going down. And when the abomination that causes desolation stands in the temple, you know that a time of great distress will follow. Such a time can be expected just before the Son of Man comes in all his power and glory. But, and here's the third stage of Jesus' progression of thought here, but only the Father knows that day and that hour. Only the Father knows that day and hour. He says in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. The exact timing of when all this will start is a secret known only to God the Father. The angels in heaven don't even know. Jesus says, I don't even know. I'm still waiting for the Father to reveal it to me. So if you don't know exactly when all this will happen, what do you do? How do you live in that kind of tension? Jesus tells us in verse 33, he says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. No one knows the day or the hour of the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord is not just a single day, but it's, it's all of those events that comprise... That, that sequence events that lead to the end, a whole series of events which I personally believe begins with the any-moment rapture of the church described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, followed by all we've talked about here, the appearance of the Antichrist, the, the great tribulation, the coming of Jesus in power and glory to judge the earth and establish his kingdom. And no one knows when all this could be set in motion There's a certain urgency about all this that Jesus wants us to grasp. In verse 34, he tells us a a little parable to help us get it. He says, It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, to literally keep watch. Here's a clear picture of, of what living should be like between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus the master's away. Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he's coming back one day. We just don't know when. He's put his servants in charge of his affairs while he's gone. He's given us work to do, namely to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the key element of the parable is the servants don't know when the master's coming back. And so that means you can't slough off now and think, oh, it's a long way off, and, and he, you know, it's going to be a long time before he comes back. And, and you know what? Just before he comes back, we'll get real busy and, and do what we need to do. If you don't know when the master's coming back, you need always to be ready for his return, don't you? So when Jesus says, be on guard, stay awake, watch, he's not saying, you know, go to all the prophecy conferences you can and read every book you can about trying to get every event in the right order and and figuring out the time. That's not what it means to watch. What it means to watch is to stay busy about your work to stay busy about the work that your master gave you to do. Be faithful in the work I've given you to do while I'm away. Live your life in such a way that it doesn't matter when he comes back. Live in such a way that you're always ready for his return so that whenever he comes back, you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus is coming with power and glory. Watch for the signs that that time is drawing near, but... Only the Father knows that day and hour, so, and here's the fourth progression, fourth step in the progression of Jesus' thought here, and it really is the bottom line for everything he's saying, so, always be ready. Always be ready. Therefore, he says, verse 35, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. These are the four watches of the night, according to the Roman reckoning, and, and especially for the sake of Mark's readers in Rome, he's saying, you don't know if he's coming, you know, like from six to nine in the evening. You don't know if he's coming at midnight, nine to twelve. You don't know if he's coming in the third watch, rooster crows, twelve to three, or the fourth watch of the night, three to six. You have no idea when he's coming. You don't know when it's going to be, so you need to be ready for whatever time he comes, lest he comes suddenly and find you asleep. That's the one thing you don't want to happen. For Jesus to come back in all his power and glory and you haven't been busy doing his work. You've been asleep on the job. Don't let that happen. Reminds me of when I was in high school, I had a job at a local bread distribution plant. It was part of the Wholesome Bread Company. And they had like 20 or 30 stores all around the Chicagoland area and uh, these were stores where the local bread truck deliveries were made out of those stores. And then the, the bread truck drivers would bring back the stale bread that hadn't sold in the grocery stores, and it would be sold in our thrift store. But the way this worked was that the semi-trucks would come out of Chicago in the bakery in, in the city, and they would deliver uh, probably two or, or more semi-loads of bread in big racks every night be rolled off the the truck and onto our loading dock. And then it was the loader's job. He was probably the most important person in the whole operation. His job was to greet the trucks when they arrived from the city, take the bread off the trucks, and then take those racks of bread and go around to the delivery trucks, 30 of them, which are parked nose in with their doors open. And on each back door, the driver had put a a list of his order for that day, what he needed in order to fulfill his, uh, his orders for the grocery stores, the route that he had. And so Leon, our loader, was the guy who was supposed to work through the night and take those racks of bread and go around and fill all the truck orders so that when the truck drivers got in at six or seven in the morning, the trucks were full and ready to go and the drivers could just go to their stores and fill the grocery store shelves. Now, that's how it was supposed to work. Leon was really good at his job. He was a, he was a good old boy redneck and he, he wouldn't be upset if I called him that to his face. He would have been proud of that designation. A uh, good old boy redneck. And, and Leon was really good at his job. He was a scrawny little guy, but very strong. And he figured out that it really only took him about two and a half hours or so to, uh, to fill up those trucks. So the bread would come out of the city. Usually the last delivery would be about midnight or so. And all that bread would be standing on the loading dock. And he figured he had till about 4.30 or so to really get busy and start loading those trucks. And so he would, uh, he would go and he'd put his feet up on the boss's desk and lean back sometimes fall asleep, and normally he would get up in time to uh, hurry up and, and work like a madman for two and a half hours, to get all those trucks filled, and, and everybody's happy. They, they go off with their full trucks to deliver, to deliver their, their bread to the grocery stores. Every once in a while, <clears throat> instead of sleeping at the boss's desk, Leon was known to go out to his car and sleep, and we figured that there probably was some alcohol involved in that as well. Uh, but Leon had this thing down until one day he didn't wake up in time. In fact, the boss came in 6 o'clock in the morning, and there was Leon sitting at the boss's desk with his feet on the boss's desk, leaning back in the chair. And boss uh, said, Leon, this can never happen again. If this happens again, you're gone. But it did happen again. And one day we came in, the trucks hadn't been loaded, and Leon was gone. Why? Because the boss came and found him asleep. Jesus is saying, don't let that happen to you. You need to be busy doing my work. I want you to be engaged in, in the work I've given you to do. When something is a long time in coming, the tendency is to begin behaving as if it's never going to come. And so you lapse into a little laziness, unpreparedness, even slumber. And, and Peter warns about this in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, you know, there's coming a day in the last days when people are going to scoff and say, Where is this coming? He promised. It's never going to happen. So live however you want. Don't worry about it. It's never going to happen. And they'll make excuses for living any old way they want. But if you get lazy about how you're living, thinking that day is still a a long way off, if you start living as if it probably will never happen, look out. You're setting yourself up for the worst kind of surprise, as Jesus says in verse 37 And what I say to you, I say to all stay awake. Stay awake. He's saying, I'm not just saying this to you four guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. I'm saying this for the benefit of all my followers. And and, and Mark knows this is for the benefit of his readers in Rome. It it includes them, and it's for us too. As we read Mark's gospel, almost 2,000 years later, the moment of crisis is unknowable. But the appearing of the Son of Man to vindicate his own is certain. We must live this moment, we must live every moment, as if Jesus could come in the next moment. So in contrast to Leon, I'll tell you another story about, I've told you parts of the story before about how when I was going through seminary, Diane and I lived in a mansion. Uh, It was uh, two miles down the road from the seminary, a mansion on 22 acres of prime real estate on the north shore of Chicago. It was this very wealthy couple, and they had this big house that they wanted to fill up, and so they would find someone trustworthy and they went to the seminary and they said, do you have a couple who'd like to live with our, us in our house? And we interviewed with them and they accepted us and I think we were the second or third seminary couple to do this with them. And we lived in the upstairs and they lived in the downstairs and they said, we just want somebody to fill up the house, make, make a little noise upstairs and, and uh, treat it as if it' were your own. They said, they said, there's just one thing we'd like to ask you to do, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, would you take out the trash uh, twice a week? And I'm like, well, all right, I suppose I could do that, you know, in exchange for free rent. So, uh, so we lived there uh, rent-free for like a year and a half while I was finishing up seminary. Now, the first year we were there, uh, the Idels told us uh, we're going to be leaving for Florida right after the holidays, and we won't be back until April, maybe early May. We just don't know. And so, you know, they, we, we just never knew when they were coming back. Uh, and, you know, we enjoyed having the mansion to ourselves for four months. The next year, Mr. B, unfortunately, went down to Florida by himself because that, that fall, Mrs. Brightell had passed away. She'd been ill for quite some time. And Mr. B told us uh, right after Christmas, I'm heading down to Florida. And uh, not sure how long I'll stay. I'll come back sometime late April, early May. Not sure when. And off he went in his big yellow Cadillac. Well, after he left, Diane said, I've got an idea. She said, you know, this place is really kind of needing some TLC. Mrs. B's been sick for a while. She hasn't been able to keep it up as well as I'm sure she, she had earlier in her life. And, and, you know, the kitchen floor is just t- terrible. It's got multiple layers of wax on it. It's, it's got marks from her wheelchair. It's, it's just dirty. And the kitchen cabinets are dirty. And, and, and this carpet here ought to be cleaned. And how about we do all that for him while he's gone? And I said, okay. So, we, uh, we started doing that probably most Saturday mornings. We spent at least a little time uh, working on getting the house clean. We didn't know when Mr. B was coming back. We had a vague idea of when he might be back, but we didn't know the exact day or hour. And so we worked diligently throughout that winter until probably early spring, maybe toward the end of March into April. We were getting the place to the where it was like really looking good. And we were feeling, feeling pretty excited about, about what Mr. B would find when he got home. The, the cabinets were clean and the floor had been stripped down and freshly waxed. It sparkled and the carpets were clean. And so we, now we were getting to the point where we can't wait for him to come home, right? Because we have been doing all this work all along. And finally came a day, I'm not sure when it was, probably late April, when we pulled in the driveway after a day at school and, and Diane said, Hey, is that Mr. B's car? Uh, up there by the house. You know, the driveway was like a quarter mile long and had these trees lining it. And, and so we, uh, we were trying to look through the trees and see, and the closer we got, we realized, yeah, that's his yellow Cadillac parked right up next to the house. He must be home. We couldn't wait to get in the house. And we weren't disappointed when we came in and he, he said, wow, the place looks great. You didn't have to do that, but thanks for all you did. I really appreciate it. I guess what I'm saying is, be like Diane, not like Leon, (laughs) right? That the Lord will come is certain. But we don't know the day or the hour, so we must always be ready. This kind of urgency is often missing from our lives, and so it leads to sloppy living as a result. We say things like, yeah, one of these days... I should share my faith with my friend at work. Not not today, but one of these days. We say, yeah, one of these days I I need to get my act together and get right with the Lord, but I want to have a little more fun first. Not today, but one of these days. Yeah, one of these days when things aren't so hectic at work and the kids aren't aren't requiring so much of my time, I I want to get busy serving the Lord. Not today, but one of these days. One of these days, One of these days, it's later than you think. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. Let's pray. Father, how great it is as believers in Christ to have that day to look forward to that day that is described in Scripture as the day of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. How we look forward to that day when you will come in power and glory leading angel armies to set all things right and make all things new. To judge all evil, to vindicate your own, to gather your people to be with you forever in a glorious kingdom that will never end. Lord, we don't want that day to take us by surprise. So help us stay awake. Help us to be alert. Help us to always be ready. So that that day for us, it won't be a cause of embarrassment or dread, but a day that we can look forward to with great anticipation a day when we can be confident of hearing the Master say when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant. May we live with that sense of urgency, that kind of anticipation, so that whether you come in this moment or the next moment, we will be ready so that we can be eager for your return and pray with you are people down through the ages. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.